This morning's scripture is from the first book of Samuel, 25th chapter. It's a story that starts um, with a woman named Abigail. She is married to a very rich man. And um, the thing, the situation is that uh, David, he's not yet king, but David up in the mountains uh, has a band of warriors and, and shepherds and and uh, they kind of control the mountains, and they've done a favor for this very rich man. And they come to the rich man, and they let him know of the favor that they've done, and they will leave it to him to, uh, to pay them back for that favor. And her husband, the rich man, decides that he doesn't need to pay them back, that he, uh, you know, he didn't ask for this. And so she comes to David. She brings a feast. She brings a lot of stuff. And she comes to David. And this is uh, the last half of what she has to say to him pleading with him. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord God will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If anyone should rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. When the Lord God has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for having saved himself. And when the Lord God has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Amen. Some of these Old Testament passages that I felt challenged to preach from are a little little difficult to understand their context. Gracious God, you have given us your word. It may be ancient, but there is truth there. By your Holy Spirit, distill some of that truth into our hearts. Be with our minds and our imaginations. May we glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, allow me to tell you just a a little bit more about the context of today's scripture. Kelly did a great job. The young warrior David is not yet king. Um, he's been designated heir appoint, uh, apparent to Saul. King Saul doesn't like this guy. He, he thinks, you know, young, strapping warrior, he's going to take over. Well, yes, he is. But, okay, so David has done his best to stay away from Saul. So he's out in the wilderness of Moan. 
And he is providing, as Kelly said, he's providing protection. Now, whether this is a racket, I don't know. But he's providing protection to the flocks and to the shepherds that are there. It seems that there are marauding Bedouin who, you know, have their eyes on livestock that is not their own. So David is kind of acting like the regional sheriff. Well, at the time of this scripture, the, it's been a good year for the sheep. And it's time for the shearing. And, you know, it's also time for feasting and generosity. And indeed, um, seeing that there might be some opportunity for David and his men to be, you know, celebrated as part of that largesse from the, from the flocks. Uh, David sends 10 of his men to this character by the name of Nabal. And he requests, the men request some tribute from Nabal uh, for having provided protection to the shepherds and to the sheep. Now, Scripture tells us Nabal is filthy rich, and he's also very nasty. Um, his name literally means fool. Do not name any of your children Nabal. So Nabal clearly has heard from his herdsmen that uh, David and his men have provided this protection in the last year, but Nabal coarsely scoffs at David. He says, they're nothing more than escaped convicts, and they deserve nothing. So they return to the camp empty-handed. They tell David what's happened, and David, man, that young ego just flies into motion. He is offended. Evil has been returned for all the good that he's done, and he orders 400. A little loud. 400 of his men to strap on their swords, go to Nabal's camp, and leave nobody standing. Okay? Meanwhile, Nabal's beautiful, long-suffering wife, Abigail. She hears about this encounter. She anticipates the probable consequence and conflagration that's ahead, and she hustles into action. So without telling Nabal, she puts together 200 loaves, 200 skins of wine, five sheep, measures of grain and raisins and cases of figs, loads them onto donkeys and sends them out on ahead to David and his men. And she follows her peace offering. And coming around the hill, she rounds face to face into the warrior, the Goliath slayer, the king-to-be, David. There she is. So in exaggerated courtesy, Abigail falls on her face saying that she knew all along that her husband was a fool, and she begs for Nabal's uh, guilt to be placed on her. Now, you need to know something, and that is that at this time, which is about a 1,000 years before Jesus is on the scene, taking a person's life outside of an act of war was justified only in case of self-defense. Vengeance, as it would be in this case between Nabal and David, was the Lord's alone to take. And should one take revenge by killing a foe like Nabal, it was considered blood guilt, and it was a capital offense against God. Well, there's Abigail offering her profuse apologies, and she senses that David, in all of his youthful whatever, is softening. Maybe he's not so intent now on annihilating Nabal and his troops. And right then and there, because in this instance she discerns that David might just refrain from committing blood guilt, she blesses him, saying, May the Lord make for you a sure house, David. That means a lasting dynasty. And when other men rise up against you, 
May your life be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord. I wish we could all say that because it's just such a wonderful term. May your life be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord. Well, in that moment, a light goes on in David, reminding him of his anointing, that he indeed will become king of Israel when Saul dies. And in all likelihood, he recognizes, too, that blood guilt, should he kill Nabal or any of his men, blood guilt would jeopardize his reign. When Abigail's words, the blessing that she gives, she calls out from David something he has seemingly forgotten about himself. She reminds him that he is capable of acting in light of his promised future as an instrument of the Lord, as opposed to acting like a wounded adolescent. And it works. Everybody's lives are spared. David praises God for Uh, the divine's providence. He acknowledges that Abigail's tact and soft-spoken words have indeed spared him from avenging himself by his own hand. The next morning, Abigail goes to Nabal, who's a little hungover, tells him what she's done. And scripture tells us that Nabal became like the dead and 10 days later dies of natural causes. This is where I think history is really funny. So David becomes aware of Nabal's death, and he proceeds to request that the wise and beautiful woman become his wife, and the rest is history. (laughs) We hear a lot about David in our Bible studies. But I, for one this morning, am grateful for the opportunity to celebrate another hero, Abigail a fast-acting instrument of the divine from whom we all benefit, even today. If something had happened to David, that whole line down to Jesus would have been disrupted. For me, her hero status doesn't become, uh, doesn't, doesn't come to her because of all the figs and the, you know, the wine and stuff that she heard it off to offer David. It doesn't become of her, uh, to her because of her groveling in the dust asking that she be made the object of David's rage because her husband is such a bozo. No, my admiration comes to her, comes for her, because in the twinkling of an eye, she perceives a truth about David in her heart, and she speaks a blessing. She paints a picture with words about the future for him. Standing in the roadway, face-to-face with this man who terrorized kings and had 600 hungry, sword-swinging guys at his disposal. With her own heart pounding, she discerned something about him and called out a reality about who he was and who he would become before God. Abigail, somebody said she she, she brought forth a homecoming. She brought David home to himself to an awareness of who he was called to be, and shared a vision with him about what his life would be like. Now, to all the world she might have looked like Dorothy, you know, on the yellow brick road in The Wizard of Oz, but in that moment, she was the restored tin man, the scarecrow, and the no longer cowardly lion all rolled into one. She was courageous, she was perceptive with her heart, and she was wise. When she spoke to David saying... May God make for you a lasting dynasty 
And may you be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord your God. She told him she knew who he was. Not a swaggering bully, but one within whom God resided and in whose life God had already acted and would act. A blessing. A blessing, according to the Isaac, uh, Irish mystic John O'Donohue, a blessing spoken to another person is something that calls out a divine possibility apparent in that person's life. Can I say it again? A blessing spoken to another person is something that calls out a divine possibility apparent in that person's life. Its aim is to connect the person who hears it in his or her own awareness with divine graciousness. In one person's words, blessing is the art of harvesting visions from the invisible world ones that aren't offered by the external world, and placing them into the immediate consciousness of another. Okay, I'm going to do that one more time. Blessing is the art of harvesting visions from the invisible world, ones that aren't offered by the external world, and placing them into the immediate consciousness of another person. I was 19 years old, took me five and a half years to get through college. Let me just start with that. I was 19 years old. I was in junior college, wondering what in the world I was going to do with my life. I'd been maybe at best a B student. One of of my, I think it was a modern history professor, said to me ever so gently, Catherine, you're a good writer. You're the kind of writer that will one day change lives and hearts by what you write. I have to tell you that it's one of those moments when you sort of look around to see if somebody was talking to somebody else because I, I struggled to be what I thought was a barely adequate writer. And here was somebody who opened something to me. He wasn't doing it to be flattering. He followed up on it the next year. He hired me <laughs> to work for a public policy institute, and I wrote for them. Honest and true. That man uttered a blessing to me. He opened up a vision of something that was apparent to him and me that could become my future, and it changed my life. It is said that in all of us, there is a shy light. It's the part of us that that seeks wholeness. It's the part that responds to the Holy Spirit. It's the part that resonates with truth and beauty. It's the part that if we don't have it in our lives, our lives are boring and dull and awful. It's that sort of secret under-territory in all of us where our real life, the life we celebrate here in church, where that real life is anchored and where hopes of wholeness never dim. In the case of our scripture this morning, Abigail's words to David called out an invisible truth about him. And they rang with legitimate possibility, and he responded. The best I can tell, she sensed something about David that was, you know, he was like every other human being, like you and me and everyone before him and after him, that we all lead lives where the invisible stuff about who we know we might be has gotten all tangled up and covered up by the visible. 
We all fall in love with the appeal of what we can see, what we can earn, uh, the status we can achieve, what we can accumulate. We become fascinated with the external world and its payoff. To the point that sometimes I think we almost develop something like amnesia about the invisible world. The world where we track honor and character and soul and meaning. I don't recall who said it, but he said, what is nearest to the heart is often furthest from the world. When the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth that in this life we see through the glass only darkly, it was to state the painfully obvious that we don't perceive meaning and purpose or our own eternal heritage with our eyeballs. (laughs) And sometimes our hearts just become too encumbered to navigate really well with that invisible world, and our minds fail to decipher it. But it's there. And a blessing, a blessing well and sincerely uttered and heard has the power to alter our horizons, to pull back the curtains of the invisible, and to set loose new possibilities. A blessing isn't a pleading, it's not wishful thinking, it's not manipulation. Gee, I really see in you the possibility to get straight A's. That's not it. Blessing is something else. Abigail saw David was living in a material world as if it was his only reality. He was fixated on this immediate moment of crisis and pride. He'd forgotten those markers of invisible presence and providence. He'd forgotten about the grace that had flooded his life. And just when confusion and fear and uncertainty were about to take sway in him and force his hand of vengeance, Abigail spoke her words of blessing, opening up this window, this horizon of possibility, and everything changed. Do you know that every one of us has the power to bless each other? In our Protestant tradition, you know, you don't have to be a clergy person to offer a blessing to somebody. You don't have to be a male or a female. Um, And I would almost say we are commanded to bless. Paul counsels the church at Ephesus, at no time let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for edifying, that's lifting, as fits the occasion, that it may impart grace, and I want to say possibility, to those who hear. Whoever has a soul from which a blessing insight might come, that person can bless. William Butler Yeats, the poet once said, feeling I was blessed, now I too could bless. And of course, the ultimate blessing to any one of us that has been spoken into our hearts is that God has said in Jesus Christ, I cherish you. I see you as forgiven and whole and blameless. Live into my love. We have been blessed. And that sets out some wild possibilities if we really take it to heart. A blessing comes from the soul. And I think it goes without saying that a true blessing is offered without any attachment to the outcome. If I see in you the presence and gifting of God, of something that opens or might open for you, and I speak that into your hearing, that's an encouragement 
That's a blessing. Now, you know, most blessings that I read begin with the word may. And I I like that because that gives room to the Holy Spirit. It suggests that the, the Spirit is the one that provides that secret energy, that that subtle presence that's behind all grace that we really feel. Well, out of this sermon this morning, I would love to encourage you to learn and practice the art of blessing. You and I can talk about it more later if you want to hear about it. Abigail's story reminds us of the power and the possibility of awakening and awareness in people that they might not yet own. But if all you can really hear this morning is encouragement to try to see what is holy and possible for the person who is sitting next to you, or at coffee hour, or bagging your groceries, or at work or at school tomorrow, and you lift that person into prayer that they might realize that, then that might be enough. But then again, Seeing in someone and saying, may you experience the extraordinary that I see open in you. That's a good thing, too. So may we all be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.